0: Comic book is a love story, a boy and girl in love. They get married, and after an offensively lurid description, illustrated of course, of the couple's wedding night, the book shows how the bride murders her husband by chopping his head off with an axe. Well, what about the effect of these comic books on the children? Uh, all of our testimony from psychiatrists and uh, children themselves uh, show that it's uh, very upsetting, that it has a sad moral effect, and that it is directly responsible for an, a substantial amount of juvenile delinquency
1: and child crime. <laughs> Greetings friends and fans of freaky, frightening, and fantastic funnies. This is Four Color Fear, the podcast that dissects and inspects horror comics. Bob here, your friendly neighborhood cast keeper and curator of the 4CF vault. And I'd like to welcome you to episode 25, where we will take a look at The Thing, published by Charlton in 1954. And that would be issue number 14. Now, before we get into this episode, I feel it's necessary that I address a terrible oversight that I've made during the last few episodes, and that would be the passing of Denny O'Neill on June 11th. Those of you who have listened to this podcast know that I am a huge Batman fan from the 70s, and Mr. O'Neill writing those scripts on the Batman title uh, really opened my eyes to what comics could really be. I was a fan of the 66 Batman TV show, but its campiness had invaded the comic book. And when O'Neill took over in the late 60s, uh, he returned Batman to his darker roots and his actual cunning as a detective. So fair winds and following seas to Mr. O'Neill. So this is sort of a milestone, Episode 25, and uh, it took us about two years to get here. When I first started off the podcast, uh, my personal goal was to release an episode approximately every three weeks. Um, I didn't quite make that. I had a few lapses uh, over these two years, uh, but really averaging an episode a month isn't too far off from my initial personal goal. So we'll take a look at the thing number 14 when I get back, so stick around. The sexy crime-worshipping violence of certain comic books has come in for a lot of
0: scathing criticism during the past couple of years. Resolutions have been introduced, experts have written books, governmental committees have held hearings. Even in the comic industry itself, steps have been taken to clean up some of the filth. The Comics Magazine Association of America, Incorporated, has been formed and a code written. Here's a copy of it. The code sounds fine, and they've appointed a czar to enforce it. But the undesirable comic books haven't disappeared from the newsstands of this country. Why? I'll tell you exactly why. Because no action has been taken by the most powerful influence in America. The people. You. Many of the publishers are already out of business. But there's an immense backlog still in the warehouses and on the newsstands. Unless the individual communities find out where
1: they are and get rid of them, These books will be around for years. Yes, our old friend, Mr. Paul Coates, from his Confidential File TV program. Sounds like he's calling for a good old-fashioned book-burning, First Amendment Be Damned. I shouldn't pick on Mr. Coates because we love him here in the vault. In fact, we're so fond of him that he is the first voice that you hear in every episode in our introduction. And incidentally, and I don't know why I've never mentioned this before, the man who he is interviewing in our opening is none other than Estes Kefauver, who was a politician from Tennessee. He was first in the House and then served in the Senate, a member of the Democratic Party, who was Adelaide Stevenson's running mate in 1956, and most importantly to us here in the vault, was one of the co-chairs of the Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency, which of course led to the formation of the Comics Code Authority, which Mr. Coates mentioned in that little soundbite. So, we have Charlton's The Thing, one of my favorite pre-code comic titles, of course, because it was basically Steve Ditko's book. We discussed The Thing way back in Episode 2 when we paid tribute to Mr. Ditko, so I'll just briefly say that it was a horror anthology title published by Charlton for 17 issues from February 1952 until November 1954. It was, of course, a victim of the Comics Code Authority. Now, the Thing number 14 has a cover date of June 1954 and a cover price of 10 cents, and this cover, of course, has pencils and inks by Steve Ditko, and it depicts a scene of attack of some demonic, gargoylish-looking creatures. They're attacking some women. It appears to be in an ancient culture because it looks like it's taking place in some sort of coliseum or arena. We get the typical Weird Tales of Suspense and Horror tagline at the top, The Thing! Exclamation point as the title, and we get Ditko's signature in the bottom left-hand section of the page. Now, inside the book, The Thing number 14 has 36 pages, with four comic stories and one text story. Our first comic story, Stiltskin, is a twisted retelling of the classic fairy tale, That's followed by The Evil Eye, where a man plans on murdering his wife, but it turns out she's a witch, and you know what that could lead to. That's followed by our text story, the cleverly titled Mr. Conscience. Next up is Doom in the Air, where a man is lynched by some brothers. Years later, he is awakened by an atomic blast. How about that for the 50s? And he stalks his wrongdoers. And closing out the book is the story entitled Inheritance where two archaeologists discover an Egyptian tablet describing an age-old curse concerning themselves. That could possibly be our cover story. So there's a brief synopsis of the stories in The Thing number 14. When I get back, we'll dig deeper into our featured story, so I hope to see you on the other side. Those hysterical hilarious horrors when you join those Bowery boys as overnight guests in a mansion of merry maniacs we just want your heads well oh, well if you we
0: said that in a foot our heads Uncle Anton the scientific stoop
1: oh, oh, oh. would you like a high cut or a low cut sir oh, I'd like a low cut Uncle Derek the medical madman what is it you're trying to say
0: Help the- yeah.
1: Cousin Francine, the fluff with the stuff.
0: I mean business.
1: Aunt Amelia, who's no camellia. The butler Grisson, he's gruesome. The family tree, a man-eating honeysuckle.
0: Boy, oh boy, I feel just like a space cadet. This will register his brain potential.
1: (laughs) My friend here has a vacuum-packed head. The Bowery boys get the Heebies, the Jeebies, the Willies, and the Shakes, while you get the laughs of the year.
0: Oh, he's
1: Gentlemen, I have a suggestion. 50-50. No, no, no!
0: Routine six, Satch! Oh, oh, oh. No.
1: I always preferred Abbott and Costello on WPIX Channel 11. The old man, he favored the Bowery Boys or the Eastside Kids or the Dead End Kids. They were known as all three, depending on the time period. And they would air around the same time on a Sunday afternoon on WNEW Channel 5. This film, The Bowery Boys Meet the Monsters, was released the same year as The Thing Number 14. And as much as I preferred Bud and Lou, I always enjoyed Hunts Hall's performance as the rubbery-faced Satch. So a few years later, when I was discovering rock and roll and picked up my first Cheap Trick album, which would have been their second release, in color, and on the back of the cover, I saw this guy riding a moped who looked a lot like Satch. Well, that was no accident, because it turns out that Rick Nielsen, when he was developing his character persona for the band he used Hunts Hall as an inspiration get
0: on with it yes get on with it
1: yes by all means let's get on with it Okay, our featured story for the thing number 14 is the second story called The Evil Eye credits we have pencils and inks by Steve Ditko no surprise there a script by Carl Melming and letters by Charlotte Jenner Now, as we know from our previous covering of The Thing, The Thing is an off-book narrator. We don't know what he, she, or it looks like. It's left up to our imagination. I always found that very interesting. So we get a half-page splash on this first page, and the title, The Thing Presents The Evil Eye the things introduction goes like this for years hatred seethed openly in the bizarre Cairo household husband Warren was feared in the area because his raging temper was accompanied by a ferocious love of gambling and liquor his crippled wife Gerda was the subject of ugly yet vague rumors among other women of the neighborhood now at last their savage feud seemed headed towards a grim conclusion For Warren had purchased one ticket for an ocean cruise, and Gerda was working overtime with her secret potions and hexes. Read on. Signed, The Thing. So in this first half-page splash, we see Warren in the living room, kneeling over what appears to be a treasure chest, opening it up. His wife Gerda is approaching him from behind. She's in a wheelchair. She's dressed very provocatively, Uh, Sort of like a uh, woman in a harem or a belly dancer. She has a strange medallion on her forehead and some very heavy black eye makeup. So it's clear that she is some sort of sorceress or possibly someone who dabbles in the occult. And Warren says, "'Gerda, I locked you in your room. How'd you get out? And how'd you know where I was?' "'Stealing more of my jewels, are you? I've warned you before, Warren.' Now you'll pay the penalty for gambling away my fortune. And she reaches out and grabs his hand and says, Give me back my precious cat's eye ring, you pig. You've stolen for the last time. Don't make me laugh, you hideous witch. There's nothing you can do to stop me. Take your claws off me. I told you to let go. I'm sick and tired of you and your crazy manias. From now on, I'll do just as I please. And there isn't a thing you can do to stop me. Let go. Let go and he gives her a left cross, knocks her out of her wheelchair. I'm not sure if I mentioned that, but she is apparently handicapped. She's in a wheelchair. So we have some pretty serious verbal and physical abuse going on between these two. She's lying on the floor now and says, I'm calling my lawyer to arrange a divorce, Warren Cairo. I'll see that you're ruined in business, cut off without a red cent. Don't make me laugh, Harby. I've already made plans for your immediate future. See this ticket? It's for a ship leaving at midnight. A three-month Mediterranean cruise. I'll be on that boat, and you're driving down towards the pier with me, but you'll never come back. And he grabs her by the arm and starts dragging her. Let me go, I'll kill you. Ha ha ha, you're doomed, you ghastly witch. And there's nothing you can do to stop me. Only reason you haven't tried to murder me till now is you're afraid of being caught but I'm not so squeamish so apparently Warren knows that she at least dabbles in the occult and the thing tells us in the next panel Gerda Cairo fought like an enraged tigress but Warren was strong in a few minutes he had her bound and gagged and ready for a gruesome trip so we see him putting her in the car and he goes on to say there is no use trying to give me the evil eye you crone Others may think you have special powers. I think it's just the bunk. Ready, dear? Ha ha ho. So I guess he he's skeptical about her witchcraft powers. So they're in the car now. We see she's bound and gagged. We get a better look at this medallion on her forehead. It has some kind of arcane ruin engraved on it. Not sure there. But Warren goes on, not much help in those potions and hexes you believe in, is there? We're heading straight towards Suicide Turn, and there's nothing you can do about it. Just for laughs, I'll tell you what I'm planning. So in the next panel, we see this Suicide Curve that he's referring to, and in classic evil villain manner, he's going to narrate his dastardly plot. Soon as I unload my baggage, I'm releasing the brake. This cradle plummet 200 feet into the ravine. I've already set the dashboard clock forward to midnight. The exact time witnesses will see me aboard the cruise boat pulling out of the harbor. So I guess he has his alibi set up. The thing tells us, with savage delight, Warren Cairo peered into his wife's guttering eyes. He struggled to glance away, and in the next instant, they're driving down the road, and he exclaims, The car, it's moving with the brakes still on. We're going over the edge. No, no, and... We see the car plummet into the ravine at suicide turn. The thing tells us, down the deadly embankment, the car plunged, hurling towards certain destruction. But at the last split second, Warren Cairo's miraculously herald free of the plummeting car, and then it crashes, and there's an explosion. We see his body being ejected from the car. So he's lying in this puddle, face down. And the thing tells us, for several moments, there was only the sound of flames crackling around the skeleton of the crushed car. Slowly, a figure moved, and it's Warren. He's like, I'm all right, bad pain in the chest, everything spinning, but somehow I survived. It's freak luck, but I'm still here, and Gerda, trapped inside that funeral pyre. If the fall didn't kill her, the fire will. Everything looks burnt to a cinder. I'll have to leave my luggage and clear out. So he apparently heads up the bank. He's hiding in the forest and sees a tractor-trailer broke down and thinks to himself, that truck's stuck on the road with a flat tire. While they're busy changing it, I'll slip into the back from the looks of it. They're heading into town. This way, no one will see me at the scene of the accident. After a few minutes, the truck moved off with Warren Cairo crouching unseen in the back. At last, it rumbled into the city, and we see he apparently jumps off the truck. He's running down the pier to try to catch the cruise ship, saying it's five minutes till sailing time. The ship's still here. I made it. So he apparently makes it onto the ship. We see him entering his cabin, and he says, thank God no one was on the deck except the purser, and he was so busy with late arrivals, he hardly seemed to notice how battered I look. I'll stay here in my cabin for a few hours, give these bruises a chance to heal. Well... (sighs) I don't know how these bruises are going to heal that quickly, because he has got a pretty serious one right across his forehead, and he thinks to himself, I can feel the roll of the waves, we're underway, I got aboard in time, now they can't blame me for Gerda's death, I can prove that I was at sea at the time of the accident, ha ha ha, and her fortune, it reverts to me, as her only heir. The thing tells us the boat churned through the calm seas and warned Cairo dozed off with a smile on his lips. Sometime later, he awoke with a shudder. He was not alone. Is that you, Valet? Does someone want me? Who is it? Who's there? And in the next panel, we see his wife, Gerda. She's no longer in her wheelchair. She's standing. And she is accompanied by these four small gnomish characters. Uh, Best way I can describe them. Each one is a different color. Red, green, white, and yellow. But anyway, she says it is I, Warren, your very own Gerda. Careless of you to walk off with my prized cat's eye ring. I haven't been so forgetful. I've brought a Bon Voyage gift. No, go away, you ghoul. You're dead. I saw you with my own eyes. The thing tells us Warren recoiled in dread, frantically reassuring himself he was having a hideous nightmare. But there was no denying the pressure of the slimy hands dragging him towards the ship's hold. He's yelling for help, and Gerda says, You don't see too well, Warren. There's no one to hear you. I'm going to take care of your defective vision, though. So we see these four gnomes holding Warren down, and he's still going on that it's a dream, a nightmare can't be happening. And Gerda says to the gnomes, chain him good and tight. This white-hot brand will make him realize how dreadfully wide awake he is. And she proceeds, in the next panel, she proceeds to brand him in the forehead. And she says, that brand will sear and torture my unworthy husband till the moment he is able to bathe it in water. Bring up the box now and open it. So apparently these gnomes have a box along with them. They open up this crate, and these gigantic rats come out of it, and we hear, Warren, have mercy, Gerda, mercy, Gerda replies, ever since I became crippled, you've taunted and mocked me, Warren Cairo, now you'll learn what it's like, and we see that the rats are making a meal out of Warren, pretty ghastly, and the thing tells us, even as the image of Gerda faded, the monstrous rats were ripping at Warren's bleeding flesh their jagged fangs slashing and mutilating an eternity of torture passed for warren cairo as he fainted and revived a dozen times the gruesome attack ceased at last and we see warren in this panel uh, pretty gruesome well i'll let him tell you my my hands they've been chewed off and my legs good lord nothing but bloody stumps where my feet were but the chains are loose and we also see that brand in his forehead And all of a sudden, uh, Gerda and the rats and the little gnome fellas, they're gone. So Warren crawls towards the deck of the ship and says, Water, she said water would ease the red-hot agony where she branded me. Got to drag myself overboard into water water the only thing that can save me and he throws himself overboard somehow now this guy has no no extremities they've all been chewed off just bloody bony stumps and the thing tells us down into the murky depths of the sea warren cairo plunged down down his lungs collapsed from the awful pressure as warren cairo fought frantically to get back to the surface then at the same instant his pain ceased and his heart stopped pounding so we see Warren sinking to the bottom of the ocean. And we're in the next panel, we see these two hunters approaching the crash site, you know, at the suicide turn. And the thing tells us at precisely the same moment, at the bottom of the dreaded suicide turn, these two hunters are having this conversation. Mike, that wrecked car must have tumbled down the embankment. And over there, brrr, it doesn't take field rats long to find a meal, does it? Ugh, I feel sick. And we can see that these gigantic rats are having their meal on Warren, who is no longer in the bottom of the ocean, but rather in the ravine along Suicide Turn. So these hunters, I guess these guys are out at night, I don't know, practicing some poaching, I'm not sure. But anyway, these hunters continue this conversation. We'd better run for the police. Remember that license number. The cops will need it for identification. Let's get out of here before I faint. So the thing tells us, the horrified hunters scrambled up the steep embankment, the blood running cold in their veins, the telephone lines crackled, then we see the police have arrived. Now, I don't know where this takes place, I'm assuming somewhere in the United States, but these cops are dressed like English bobbies. You know, they got the rounded hats, uh, well, who knows, who knows what, what Ditko was thinking there. Could have been his editor's call, who knows. And one of the cops says, never saw rats that size in this area. And one of the hunters raises his shotgun, fires off a shot and says, maybe this will scatter them. So it does. It scatters the rats away. And we see Stumpy Warren lying face down. And one cop says, his hands and feet, they've been gnawed off by them rats. We'd better cover up the corpse before someone with a weak stomach sees it. Hold it, Corey. Motorcycle is bringing someone to make identification. Headquarters trace that license number. They're rushing a neighbor or someone over to take a look at the body. Wonder what killed the poor buzzard. The crash? The rats? Or the drowning in this little pool of water? Turn him face up, Corey. They're bringing down the person who's going to make the identification. And Corey, who apparently is the other cop, is complaining, Ugh, why do I always get the lousy jobs? I hope it only takes a few seconds to get this grisly business over with. So he turns over... Warren and we now see that he is no longer branded in the forehead but we see the cat's eye jewel there and I guess it's impaled in his forehead I'm not sure and he exclaims one of the cops that is he exclaims good god ever see anything like that on on his forehead An eye of some kind it seems to be branded there can can you identify the corpse And a voice off panel says, it's Warren Cairo, as you suspected, gentlemen. And now we see in the final panel, the two policemen, one of them is pushing Gerda, who's in her wheelchair. And the one cop says, thanks for cooperating, Mrs. Cairo. It must be a terrible shock. And she replies, I can't say I didn't expect it. I warned him, but he refused to see what I meant about premonitions of disaster. Poor Warren. And we get a closing narration from The Thing that says, Farsighted woman, that Gerda Cairo. Might even be described as superhuman, don't you think? He, 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 he. And it's signed, The Thing. Okay, I mostly enjoyed this story. I do have one small issue, and it concerns Gerda. Like, was she in the car at all? It's pretty clear that she caused the accident to occur, killing Warren. And everything that occurred to him on the ship was just in his mind as he was dying in the puddle. The rats were already there in the woods or in the ravine. But was she ever in the car at all? It's a bit hazy. Uh, Other than that, I thought it was a pretty entertaining story. Very funny at times. And uh, obviously some pretty gruesome horror elements. Uh, As far as the artwork, well, Steve Ditko, you know I'm kind of partial there. Um, But... Uh, Usually I rave about Ditko's depiction of action, and that is just fine here. However, uh, what really stood out to me, several panels, the composition is just outstanding. Just some great artwork from Ditko, Uh, the pencil and ink work, uh, very reminiscent of his early work at Marvel amazing fantasy and then the amazing spider-man the early issues his style would change a bit but this is very reminiscent of that but i was really impressed with uh, some of the composition of the panels and as far as the panel for the episode it's kind of hard not to pick a panel where warren is splayed out after the rats have had a feast on him it's some pretty gruesome stuff there so that's going to do it for our featured story the evil eye from the thing number 14 For our next episode, I'm going to forego the random comic generator. Halloween is just around the corner and I do not know if the next episode will be released before or after the holiday, but it will be sometime around the Halloween season. And for that reason, we're going to do a Halloween special two-color fear and we're going to take a look at Creepy number 58 published by Warren in 1973. Always a lot of fun when we take a look at Warren. We looked at Vampirella a few episodes back This time we'll visit Uncle Creepy So that's going to do it for this episode I'd like to thank you for listening If you'd like to reach out, get in touch with me Leave a comment or suggestion You can drop an email To 4colorfear At gmail.com You can also visit the blog fourcolorfear.blogspot.com. You can check out the Facebook group Just search for 4 Color fear on Facebook And remember, Four Color Fear is always spelled the number four, C-O-L-O-R-F-E-A-R. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you around Halloween. Bye-bye. This episode of Four Color Fear is brought to you by the letter D.